Often major works of literature that stand the test of time have a particularly memorable first sentence. Call me Ishmael. Or happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family uh, is unhappy in its own way. Or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. There are these, these lines that stand out, that pull readers in. How does the New Testament begin? I wonder how many of you know off the top of your head the opening line. Is there a memorable opening line to the New Testament, this major uh, influential work of literature? Well, the opening line is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And maybe a modern editor would say, you know, to begin this really important collection of books that people are going to look to where they want their heart warmed and they want inspiration and they need help in their sorrow. Could we just skip that long list of names and get right to that great story that, that celebrated every Christmas? The, so the angel showing up and announcing to Joseph something amazing is going to happen. That could be a better way to begin uh, this book. That would be perhaps the suggestion of the modern editor. But if you've spent the time reading the Bible from the beginning and, and, and studying it and spending years of getting to know these people and their names, then that opening list of names, so there's a bit of a learning curve to appreciate it, otherwise it just seems tedious and boring. Uh, but, but that list of names tells a complex, profound, sometimes wonderful, often very tragic story. And it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And we follow these names down uh, and the names take us to a period where uh, Matthew tells us, uh, you know, the story seems to increase from Abraham to David, but, but after David, the story of the kings is, is not an easy story until finally uh, there's an exile. And so, so we understand that Jesus comes not sort of as the next thing or uh, another uh, blip in the story of God or some encouraging piece, but Jesus comes after this long, dark, difficult period. And one of the reasons his arrival is such good news is not simply the signs around it of angels and stars and magi and all of the things we remember at Christmas, but it's the longing and this messy story that doesn't hold together, that finally starts to come to be pulled together, that's what makes Christmas so profound and so powerful. And so uh, this year, as we celebrate Christmas, we're going to consider as a church the, the same stories of angels and magi uh, and inns and, and the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks and we'll continue to talk about. But to really understand why Christmas is meant to be an occasion for rejoicing. It's important to understand how Jesus's arrival came into darkness, came into struggle, came into suffering, came into confusion. And in that sense, Christmas is always meant to be an occasion for rejoicing, but this year where many will feel, how do you rejoice? How do you celebrate after 2020? What a crazy year it's been and how difficult it will be given most of us are not celebrating Christmas as we normally would. Can we rejoice this year? Well, we can if we remember the Christmas story is a story about Jesus coming into a community that's experienced exile. Now, 
maybe it feels like an exaggeration for us. Most people watching, uh, we're in New York church, but we have people logging in from all over the country, occasionally people internationally. Uh, but for most of us, maybe to use the word exile to talk about why 2020 was hard. 2020 was hard because of sickness and death and because of isolation and because of uh, political challenges and social issues. There's a number of reasons 2020 was very difficult. But would, would exile describe things for us in the same way that we would talk about Syrian refugees who over the last few years have really had to leave in this terrible way? I don't know that exile is the first word that would come to mind for most of us. But when you see the dynamics of exile in the story of scripture and how from the very beginning with Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden, there's this ongoing repetitive dynamic of turning from God and being cast away and being isolated. Those elements have been present for most of us this last year. And so we would say, well, we're not exiled, but is there any dynamic of our being scattered, of being separated? I mean, simply for us being in various places, watching music from the James Chapel, where we have uh, lessons and carols every year and seeing the strings and the piano there, but are sitting on couches. There's something about this period that says, no, we're experiencing being scattered. And, 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 and understanding that helps us put our finger on some of why this period is hard, even if some of us feel guilty because it's been so hard for some people that for the rest of us, that things are not what they should be. And there's this guilt, um, but then why aren't we happy? So for example, if exile is about scattering, casting out, we've had a number of our families, just like so many families in New York, leave the city. And some of that, has been a, a positive, proactive decision. You know, if, if, if I'm gonna be bound to my home uh, for the next six, eight months, however long, nobody uh, understood the, uh, the ending, the spring and summer as people were making decisions. Well, why not go to my parents or why not go to my in-laws? And that's a good decision for people to make. We've had various people do that, single people, people with kids who sort of feel like, um, you know, the single people, maybe I'll get away from my roommates or people with kids will get, get some more square footage. And, and so it's good. It's in some ways an improvement. <laughs> now we have more space. We have people to watch kids. We, you know, so going away is a good thing. You make the most of it. But there's always going to be echoes of, uh, but here's, here's the thing I didn't bring with me. <laughs> and now we're living in a situation where there are new challenges. And there's something about the, the reason that made me go to New York in the first place that that is now missing. And so even if you can say, boy, I shouldn't complain because things are good, there's something about this separation that's there. And for those of us who have remained in the city, well, look, the city's going on as usual, isn't it? <laughs> Not really when you're confined to your home only to go out for exercise or for, for essential shopping. And we're separated from each other. And so there's a good number of us that haven't gone anywhere, but we haven't seen each other. And, and there's this sense in which something has changed that's led to a scattering and it's led to isolation. And as a church, we've said, well, actually, this is an opportunity for us to draw near to God because God is with us. And, and yet months into it, the report is, I'm tired. I have, I'm having trouble focusing in prayer. And so there's something about this period where the dynamics of exile, well, let's not be dramatic and say that we're suffering like some of the people that have had to flee in Nigeria in the last week or two uh, for their safety. Uh, let's not be overly dramatic, but let's be realistic that this year has been hard in ways that we don't yet know. And our anxiety is higher, our depression is higher, uh, our scatteredness, whatever it is, 
but one component of that is this sense of, of the isolation, the alienation, uh, the breaking out, the breaking down of community that, that has echoes of these other stories of exile. So as a church, we've been looking each week this month at stanzas from the, the carol, the hymn that we sung just a, a bit earlier, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, the, the chorus of that is rejoice, rejoice, but it's sung with longing of, of, of having joy, but also having sorrow. And it's a great hymn for what many of us are experiencing this period. And so we've looked at what are we longing for? Well, we want the Lord of might. We want the key of David. Today, we're going to just reflect a little bit on the opening stanza, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. What do we want? What are we praying? Lord, what do we need as we, as we cry out? We need presence. We need something to meet our loneliness. We need the prayer is God with us. Now, why is that one of the, the longings expressed in this song? Well, the first stanza, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. So there's this memory that the Christmas story is a story that, that harkens back to captivity of Israel scattered. But then the next line that mourns in lonely exile here until the son of God appears. And I think those words, maybe you wouldn't use the word captivity to describe where you are. Maybe some of you would. You're stuck in, at home, maybe captive or stranded in some other place. Maybe captivity is the word. But, but mourning in lonely exile here, wherever I am, um, I'm lonely. There's mourning. This has been a year of sickness, of death, of protest, of all sorts of difficulties. And so many of us would say, I don't know what I think about whether or not I feel like I'm in exile, <laughs> but maybe I know something about feeling lonely and isolated. Maybe I've been mourning this year for things that I, I know or things that I can't quite put my finger on. And in that sense, what do lonely mourning people long for? The Christian tradition is they long for Emmanuel. <laughs> they long for God to come and be with us, to address our loneliness, to, to bear our burdens and and share joy as we share sorrow. And so as we consider that reality that this year, uh, I wanna talk about the names from Matthew 1. We've heard that in two different readings, the, the names of the past, but also the names of the future. And so in talking about the names of the past, I'm now talking about that genealogy that an editor may wanna cut out. Why don't we just get, let, let them read the Old Testament. Let's begin with the angel showing up. But that list of names tells a story. And if you get to know these people, you get to know Isaac and you get to know Rahab and you get to know all these various individuals and, and you read their stories and you realize uh, this has been a hard, long, messy story. But Matthew helps us by, by giving us the key points. And so in verse 17, at the end of the genealogy, so he opens the genealogy, uh, son of Abraham, son of David. I've heard, read one person talk about that, addressing time and space. David, the king that would sit on the throne forever. Abraham, the one who would fill the earth and all nations would be blessed, time and space. Somehow Jesus is doing something in time and space that's profound. And here's this list of names who have lived in time and space in this world, struggled as time endured. Uh, but verse 17 of Matthew 1, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David 
to what? What's the next stage, David to Jesus? So Matthew's organizing things around these units of 14 generations. There's Abraham. That's where we begin with a bit of a story of exile. And then we have David. And then who's next? Is it Jesus? Well, 14 generations after David, it says, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And, and we don't always know the history. We don't always know the backstory with Jesus of, of why his coming was so profound. But for people, for his generation, there was Abraham who, who God raised up at such a crucial time after Noah and destruction and Babylon and scattering. But then there's the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And then there's David who, who fulfills what was promised to Abraham with a certain glimpse that all of a sudden he, he settles Jerusalem and there's a city. But the story goes on and generations later, God's people still aren't faithful. They still don't trust him. They still don't hear his warnings. And there's this, what, what, what the translation we used described as the deportation, the exile. And 14 generations after trying to make sense of that and being back in the land, but everything being messy. That's the context for the arrival of Jesus. Jesus comes to a, to a group of demoralized people mourning, having experienced captivity lonely, uh, hoping that God would be with them, but wondering, will he? And so you see, even in these great stories, Abraham and David, wonderful, heroic, excellent people, but, but none of them perfect. You read the Bible, but Abraham's story begins with an exile. Genesis 12, leave your country, leave your home, go to a different land, and I will show you via promise that I'm going to do something remarkable. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham's life continues and he feels the loneliness in the morning and the exile as he wanders around in this land, not seeing signs of fulfillment, wondering how could this be when I myself can't have children? And that's part of the Abraham story. And yet the promise seems so impossible, but here we are 4,000 years later as one group of, as one aspect of the major world religions who trace themselves back to Abraham, this promise was made and Abraham didn't experience all of this great blessing. He doesn't know anything about, or wouldn't have known while he walked the earth, about his fame. <laughs> that 4,000 years people later, people would be talking about him. And, and yet there it was. But, but the promise came and he believed it. But the fulfillment didn't unfold instantly. He struggled. He wandered. That was part of his story. David is this climactic moment fulfilling what was promised to Abraham in a certain way. It's a, it's a glimpse. David... Uh, finally brings rest to the land in a way that hadn't been happening in the time of the judges. And he settles Jerusalem. We can say what, what the word Jerusalem means, but most people recognize the word shalom in it. Jeru, shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. There's this moment where, where there's a fulfillment, an advancing of God's plan where, where there's peace. And yet you follow David's story and David would be exiled from that city that he settled because his own son, Absalom, turns against him. You name your son, you put the word shalom, <laughs> Av shalom, my some, uh, father is Av and shalom, something my father is peace. Uh, his son turns against him and David needs to, to leave and he, he goes out of the city and, and there's a mocker, a scorner, glad that he's leaving. And David goes and wanders before he returns. We see this pattern happening over and over again in the Bible that um, there are these moments where God comes to his people and they're glorious. 
And yet there's always somewhere a turning, people who don't believe, people who won't listen, and there's a, a scattering. And so, so why is the Christmas story good news? The Christmas story is that, that Jesus comes to people who are mourning in a lonely exile. And these echoes of exile that begin in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve go out of the garden and then continue in Genesis 4 as Cain is cast away because he's killed his brother. And then the scattering in Babylon. And you keep reading this story and you find that actually this is part of human history. It's part of uh, sociopolitical history. But even where does exile show up in our lives? Here's a simple way for teachers or for parents. The timeout. How did the timeout come to be the parenting technique where we used to spank kids or we would humiliate them or we would send them to military school? Now we give them the timeout. What is the timeout? <laughs> we exile our kids. We banish them. <laughs> uh, and, but we don't do it in a mean way. The timeout is so attractive to parents for reasons they don't understand. Sometimes it's the parent who knows they, they don't control their own anger. And so it's one of these, how dare you make this mess? That's it. No ice cream for the next two years. And then as soon as you say that, you realize, okay, uh, now I, I acted on my anger and now I have to either admit that I've got an anger problem or I need to not hold to my word. And so the timeout is helpful because it allows us to send the kids somewhere while we calm ourselves down. We tell the kids, you need to go somewhere to calm down. And then the parent needs to calm down. Or the parent, this is me. I know this is not good. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> the timeout Yes, this is for you to go somewhere and figure out what you need to apologize for, but I need to figure out what I'm supposed to do about this. The incompetent parent, what do you do? There are all these reasons that the timeout is attractive, but by design, the sense is, look, if you're gonna be here, there needs to be a healthy interaction. And if you're not listening and now you're harming, you know, in the classroom, you're, you're harming other kids. So I'm, I'm gonna speak to you. I'm gonna warn you. I'm gonna help you. But if you're not listening, you need to go somewhere else. And so the kid goes somewhere else uh, to, to restore order, to create health here. But the goal in proper teaching, proper parenting, is to bring the kid back and to welcome them back, but with some change. <laughs> and so by design, what we think is that the kid will go and they'll calm down and they'll be like, boy, that was really unhelpful what I was doing. But meanwhile, the reality is the kid sits there and says, not only are these other kids hateful, but now my parents are hateful. And then they come back learning to restrain their, their anger because they don't want further consequences, but, but, but have their hearts gotten right. And that's the human problem. What happens when we're scattered, when we're isolated? I have no idea why we're in this period where we're alienated and separated, but how many of us have found ourselves saying, you know what, I'm gonna take this time alone to reflect on the kindness of God, to focus on his presence. Maybe some of us have done it, some of us have tried it, but some of us have found ourselves sitting, stewing in our anger, God, uh, as if my life wasn't hard enough. And there's something about that period of being separated that doesn't always do that restorative work that we want. And yet the design for a just and honorable oversight of parents, teachers should be uh, to bring a return. Now, now I don't want to have this analogy cause too much speculation on why God leads to exile, why God uses exile at moments in history. But one thing is we can see is there's enough there to say it could be because of God's, God's justice and his wisdom and his uprightness. He can't, you read the story of Noah. Um, why, does, why does he do this? There's violence. He can't sit and watch people kill one another. 
that it went from Cain and Abel to now society-wide. This needs to be stopped. There needs to be a separating out of that. You can imagine God's justice, his honorable nature in saying, okay, that's it. We need to separate you if you're not going to listen. Um, what I think could be helpful for us, the people who separate, who are alienated. Yes, let's think about why God and his justice in various periods would say, I cannot allow the sinner to remain in my presence and continue sinning. But what's interesting is, but what's the experience of the sinner? So Genesis 3, one of the things that we would say is God, because of his holiness, can't allow sinful people in his presence. And we'd say theologically, that's right. But what's interesting is Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve turn, there's not a voice from the outside that says, hey, Adam, this is God. I'm not coming in there because of what you've done, but you need to, to answer me. Actually, God comes in with a question, Adam, where are you? That question quite profound. Uh, God knows what Adam did. God knows where he is. Adam, where are you? And it's something for Adam to think about. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm hiding. And, and now the hiding continues as he blames Eve, as he talks about the serpent. That moment where God comes, it could be a corrective moment. You didn't listen to me. And it's not first that God sends Adam out of the garden, but Adam by instinct shrinks away from God. Adam, where are you? And there's no real, he says, I'm in the bushes, but actually the, the problem is much deeper. Adam no longer knows where he is. And then when God says, now you need to leave, he goes and he's lost. And there's a sense in which, yes, God in his uprightness won't allow us to continue doing wrong in his presence. But if God is to draw near, there's something in each of us, once we have done wrong, that becomes uncomfortable with God drawing near. And so there's this odd human instinct. We, we long for the return of Eden, but we're very willing to take exile. And it's this weird thing that we don't wanna be alone and we don't wanna warn. We want life in its fullness, but now we feel guilty. We know that we haven't trusted God. We know every one of us that we've done something that would mean if he showed up and examined our lives, uh, we would need some correction. And we don't do well with that. We don't, we don't take some time out and then come back and apologize and repent and turn. Instead, we sit and we make excuses and we get angry. And so this problem of exile is, is, is quite a problem that we have. Um, and this list of names tells a story of people who over the years have experienced God coming into their lives. But inevitably, there's always a, a mistrust of turning, a going away, and it leads to mourning. It leads to loneliness. So I've talked a little bit about the names of the past, David, Abraham, but but those who are exiled to Babylon, this list of names of people that are now mourning and confused. But I wanna talk about the names of the future because that's, that's what the Christmas story is about, that Jesus comes in space and time to do something that changes the future of the world. Something begins in that moment. The world is not radically and thoroughly changed as we would imagine it. We still mourn, there's still loneliness, but something so deep and profound that's changed the direction of things has happened that it would be such a shame to miss it and not participate in it. And it comes through the series of names in the genealogy uh, in Matthew, most people get one name, <laughs> but Jesus comes and there's a number of names or titles ascribed to him. And so um, in, in uh, verse 17, there's the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. That's the 14 generations. Where, where Jesus is referred to not by his personal name that Joseph gave him, Jesus, but, 
but by the name, the title. Christ um, is, a, is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, it meant the anointed one, the king, the ruler. That in this long, messy history, uh, where there's this wandering and scattering, now somebody who has come to, to bring order, to restore things, um, the generations to the Christ, his name, is being named the Christ is significant. Uh, but then verse 21, the angel gives instructions to Joseph. Uh, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, uh, the Hebrew name Joshua means the Lord saves. Um, but saves in what way? Well, we're, we're captive Israel, lonely, mourning, in exile. But verse 21, uh, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, it's our sin that leads to this real breakdown that God can't have us in his presence, but we actually can't have God in our presence. That's the problem. And so we sit in loneliness, afraid, mourning. Um, the angel says, but, but there's one coming named Jesus. God will save us. He will, he will enter in and he will bring us out of this mess. And verse 23, now, now reminding us that this is not a brand new story. But this is the fulfillment. So, so there's a referral to Isaiah, verse 23 of Matthew 1. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. So, so somebody comes that one name is not sufficient to describe. Who is this person that comes after this long list of names? Well, it's the Son of God. It's the Christ. It's Jesus who came to save us from our sins. It's Emmanuel who comes to bring God with us. Go back to Isaiah. It's wonderful. <laughs> He's counselor, um, mighty God, prince of peace. There are all these names and titles you could ascribe to this one person that says something is happening to change the story. Something wonderful has happened. And it's that God himself has come. And, and this is the story for people that are scattered and lonely and exiled. And we're stuck praying in our rooms. Lord, how do I return to you? How do I find you? And God comes with a question and asks, well, where are you? And our trouble is that we can't find God when we're mourning, when we're lonely, when we're confused. The Christmas story reminds us that when hopeless people look back over years and years of history and say we have wandered and we've gone astray and we've made a mess of things, the hope is not that we would find God, but that God would come and find us. That God would not be satisfied with the separation, but he would come after us. The Christmas story is not the birth of just another kid. The Christmas story is the birth of the Son of God. God is coming into the world to invite us to return. And it's that difference that now Emmanuel, God is with us. It's, it's that difference that Jesus is the Savior from our sins that, that is good news to those who are lonely, those who are mourning, those who are in exile. Because after all, what does Jesus do? At his birth, there's not much that happens other than these signs around him of angels and stars. But he grows up. And he lives an upright, perfect life, but he himself is exiled. So the same city that David established, that David was chased out of by his own son, Absalom. They are not seeking the peace of their father. But Jesus comes with the name, the Lord will save. How does salvation happen? It happens as they drag Jesus out of Jerusalem to crucify him. And what we're told is in that moment where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a sense, the human cry, God, where are you? He answers the question. He does something there. So when God comes back to us and says, where are you? 
We don't need to stay hiding in the bushes, but we can know he has sent Jesus out to invite us. The Lord will save you from your sin. The Lord will be with you in your struggle. The Lord will be the ruler to lead you and to protect you. Um, the Lord will be with us. He is our manual. So we pray, come, Emmanuel, ransom, captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. It's a story that plays itself out, and it shows up in the great stories. Um, one of the, the, the famous stories that, that um, has so many clear echoes of the biblical story are the, the, story, the children's stories written by C.S. Lewis, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and the others uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia. And what's interesting is that the story begins with this adventure of, of, of this uh, girl, Lucy, who finds in this wardrobe that she goes through and, and she comes into this beautiful wintry scene of snow and calm, and it's beautiful. But her brother, Edmund, uh, the, the way he, Lewis tells the story, he goes into this closet, but, but Edmund is this, he's a, he's a guy who struggles. He's a guy who has difficulties and he, and he, he needs some correction. And he goes through this, this wardrobe um, and he struggles and he complains and he, and he comes out and he comes out into the cold of winter. But, but the way winter is described there by Lewis is, is it's less of this beautiful, serene scene, but we feel more of the coldness of it. And we find that that actor actually characterizes the place where, where Edmund and, then the, and his siblings wind up. Um, but one of the ways that it's described when we realize what kind of picture is Lewis giving to us of this cold, hard place uh, is when this figure, Mr. Tumnus, comes up and he explains to them what is the nature of this place. Well, there's, there's this witch who is um, uh, keeping people um, in, in a terrible way. His description is, well, well, where we are under her rule is it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. And that's the thing. Christmas as a holiday comes in what is, you know, this week we have the darkest uh, day of the year. It's cold. It's harder to get out. And yet there's something about a celebration with light and food and joy in the midst of it. That, that means in the winter we, we can find joy. And, and the Christmas story is meant to do that. Think of that description. It's always winter, but it's never Christmas. There's something hopeless about that. And that's how so many people live, as, as if life is always winter, as if exile is, is it. It's the only reality that we know. There is no future. There's this. And we can make the best of it. But, but 2020 says if, if your hope is to make the best of any particular year, it's not, a, it's not a strong hope. Jesus coming into the world brings a radical change where he may not change every circumstance, but he changes our future to say you're no longer people who are being sent away from God. <laughs> so however bad it is now, it's only going to get worse. What we're told is you are people who are being called to return to God, which means however bad it is now, one day it will be better. God will fulfill his promises, even as he fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He will fill his promise to everyone who hears the invitation, come and celebrate the birth of this Jesus, God with us, and follow him, and he will lead you to a place where your loneliness will be put away, your mourning uh, will be uh, put away, and you will be satisfied. The power of the Christmas story is not that this year is going to be your greatest holiday. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't. The power in it is no matter what happens, no matter what this year has been like, no matter what your circumstances are, you don't need to be lonely. You don't need to sit alone while you're mourning. But God sends Jesus into the world so that God would be with us. 
And what we have to celebrate this year is that we can rejoice that as we pray, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, that if he came into that period, he will come as he promises into our period. And so this week, as we celebrate Christmas, enjoy it every way you can. Eat something delicious. Call somebody you love and and thank them. (laughs) But even if you're not feeling it, look for signs, evidences that, that if God is with you, you'll be okay, that, that you're not left out of the joy. And that's the power of the Christmas story. What are we celebrating this year? Is that after years and years of lonely morning struggle, Jesus showed up and he promises that he will not leave us or forsake us. So what we need to watch for this Christmas is what is the evidence that God is with us? Let's pray that he will show us and let's rejoice. He shall come to you, O Israel. That's, that's what we sing about.